Coming up on the financial food fight, the team discusses whether we're seeing capitulation, whether the U.S. stocks are in for a bear market like the rest of the world, and the East Coast bunkers down for a snowstorm. What stocks are getting a lift? This is Money Beat from the Wall Street Journal. Everything you need to know about money and the markets, and then some. Now, from New York, Financial Food Fight. Hello, and welcome to Money Beat. It's Friday, so it's Financial Food Fight. We've got Ben Eisen, Dan Strump, and Eric Holm here in the studio, and I'm Steve Grosser. And the one thing I think on everyone's mind this week is whether, you know, the worst is over. The, the you know the sort of rebound in stocks the past two days is re, is relieved the selling pressure, or are we is, is the U.S. market about to fall into uh, you know a bear market like the rest of a lot of the uh, markets around the world are currently? Um, you guys are you know working on the story, Dan and Ben. What I mean, what is your thoughts on that? I mean, is the selling pressure relieved, or you know, are we in for more uh, more selling? Yeah, I mean, I mean, it, it's it's a great question. It doesn't seem to me like you know. It seems it seems early to call the selling over right now. I, I mean, this has been uh, how, how many how many sort of dead cat bounces have we have we had just just this year alone? Uh, and you know, we're still pretty close to um, ending ending the session here uh, with with a weekly loss. So um, you know, I mean, so much of this market is just at the mercy of of the oil market. It seems like these days. And, you know, I mean, it doesn't take much uh, of a decline in that market to trigger another huge route in stocks. So I, I, I think I, th- I, I don't I don't think this is the bottom yet. Um, and I'll, I'll stick my neck out there and say it. It's funny uh, watching stock analysts uh, try to divine what's happening in the oil market. It's uh, the the two markets really are so correlated. And it's it's, um, you know, there are really questions about whether or not um uh, oil is trying to signal something to us, whether there's going to be an economic slowdown and there's going to be qu- kind of a spiral into a recession or uh, whether it's all just kind of a fluke and oil prices are just kind of running at their own whim. So uh, I would say that I personally think as long as we're uh, sort of disclosing opinions here, it seems like a lot of the other markets are kind of saying that, well, uh, maybe the stock market uh, sell-off has been a little bit overdone. What are what are sort of some of those indicators that you're looking at in terms of, you know, like how is it like the bond market, the treasury market, sort of reacted to, you know, this these first three weeks of the year? Yeah, it's interesting. I mean, it seems like in the bond market, uh, everyone's really paying attention to high yield and kind of the, the the recent sell-off we had in the high yield market. But if you look at higher quality bonds, U.S. Treasuries. Um, on uh, high-grade corporate debt, it really seems like uh, there's really not as much panic there. Yeah, you've had yields dropping. Uh, there's a, there's sort of a big fuss made when the 10-year Treasury yield dipped below 2%, but um, these aren't really huge outsized moves that we're seeing. Um, and if you look at the yield curve, which is kind of the differential between short-term yields and long-term yields, which is kind of one of those indicators of economic health, uh, uh, it's healthier when it's bigger, and it's not as healthy when it's smaller. Or if, or if the actual difference between them becomes negative, it's still it's still pretty big, which means that you know economic health really hasn't uh, uh, deteriorated as indicated by that by that measure. Now, I, that's actually a really good point. I mean, one of the one of the sort of core uh, points in the argument that okay, this is not a bear market is economic growth is okay and like ben said the 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 sort of treasury market is indicating that i mean the 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 turmoil and high yield has mostly been contained 
Um, and, you know, I mean, it's been a long time since we had a bear market without a recession. 1987 was the last time. And so it's pretty it's pretty unusual to, to, to have that. And, and, and I think that I think that that's probably a pretty compelling rationale for why we might not be in a bear market right now. One of the one of the interesting stats I've had that, that, that Kristen uh, um, pulled out, Kristen Scholar pulled out from the Morning Money Bee, was that when we've had a ten percent pullback over a six month period um, historically, and the and the economy is growing and continues growing for the next six months after that, stocks usually are up and not not insignificantly, usually on average fifteen percent, and that sort of is as long as I think the U.S. economy keeps growing, that sort of bodes well for the stock market. Yeah, de- no, def- definitely. I mean, I mean, that's definitely you know a real a real tipping point. How much of this also is centered around the, the selling? I mean, because one of the things I think many people have been asking themselves is. What what caused this? I mean, we come back from the sort of holiday break, and boom, immediately selling. And these were things that have been around and we've faced for you know months. I mean, you know, China's been around. Uh, you know, has been an issue since last June when its stock market started really crumbling. Um, oil has been going. It's been falling since you know June two thousand fourteen. Um, none of these are really new issues. My question, I guess, is how much of this is actually just sort of people came back and they looked at the central banks, the central banks that have propped up uh, the stock market and risky assets for, you know, since the financial crisis. You had the ECB disappointing in December when it, you know, it didn't increase its uh, QE program. You had the Fed, then, you know, a week later, tighten. And then you had China, uh, China's central bank come out and basically said, we're no longer doing, you know, stimulus. That's not it. And you also have Japan on the other side, which is like people question how much more they can, you know, that they have left in their sort of tool bag to, uh, to you know, you know um, boost the economy. How much does that just sort of – and at the same time, you have oil and China's currency going down and you have sort of deflation as a concern. How much do you think that was what drove – um, you know the sell-off. Yeah, I think I think that's a lot. I think there's there's definitely something to that. I mean, there's definitely something to this idea that people are now only just now starting to really pay attention to the negative things out there that have been simmering for a long time. And a lot of what has distracted them up until now, you're right, is just this idea that well, central banks will just always kind of be there. And I think that while many central banks around the world are still willing to sort of do the the same old unconventional sort of sort of strategies that they've used to keep the financial markets healthy, there's less appetite for it, and there's less and less as time goes on. And you have, you know, people starting to finally wake up, I think, and, sm- and see some of these, so, some of the realities that have been on the ground for, for a while sort of, sort of more clearly. And I think that's uh, very acute in, in China specifically, because uh, when you look at uh, some of the efforts that the, the Chinese government has done, they kind of let the yuan weaken a little bit more than uh, people expected that they would. Um, there's sort of a sense that, oh, has the government lost control? And, and I think that the key thing here with China is that it's very much a planned economy. It's, you know, everything that happens in China sort of depends on policymakers kind of having a, a firm grasp on what's going on. And when you start to see those surprising moves uh, there, I think that really starts to raise some alarm, more so than you might see, you know, in, during a, a in, in the U.S. with a Fed tightening cycle or, or something like that. Yeah. You know, I, and I also think that actually more, more recently there are some things that are that are sort of new to the picture, right? I mean, the, the sort of 
thesis that oh well the U.S. economy is the is the rock of strength in the in the world right now. That that thesis I think is just starting to get tested a little bit. You saw really bad. Um, uh, December retail sales data come in. You've seen steadily eroding uh, manufacturing numbers coming in for m- m- most of 2015, I think. Um, and you're seeing, you know, the sort of resilience in the housing market has started to crack a little bit. So, uh, and and even 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 the sort of the sort of idea that all low oil prices are great for everybody in the U.S. Even that's starting to to, to sort of be questioned a little bit. I mean, um, yes, just yesterday, Brinker International, the, the restaurant chain, they said that their sales are are way down in places like Texas. Uh, Oklahoma, Louisiana, all these oil-sensitive areas, um, and and this is a is, you don't get any more consumer stock than that. So um, there's a lot of other new things here too. And I think as much as there is something new here, it, it also is sort of a sense sometimes that that you know stocks, U.S. stocks, take a while to kind of wake up to what's going on around the world. I mean, last August when we had sort of a another China-inspired sell-off, you know, China had been selling off for weeks before U.S. stocks did, and I think that. Um, you know, maybe it takes some time to gather steam and, and, you know, kind of the particularly violent sell-off that we saw this week. Um, you know, that could be part of it. We'll pause right there and come back after this. Hi, this is Veronica Dagger. Catch me midweek every week on Watching Your Wealth, where you learn all you need to know about building your wealth and protecting your money. Check us out at WSJ.com slash podcasts. Follow us on Twitter at WSJ Podcasts and become a subscriber on iTunes. WSJ Podcasts. Listen ambitiously. Now from New York, Financial Food Fight. Welcome back. This is uh, Steve Grosser, and we, we all have Chuck Jaffe on the line. Um, one of the big questions was after this steep sort of sell-off that we saw on Wednesday, and, and many people in the market were looking for real kind of for the market to really throw up. You know, the stocks rebounded, and Thursday and Friday they've been up. Uh, was this a, was this capitulation or not? I mean, you know, is the selling pressure still intact? Um, I know Eric, you were you were editing Jason uh, Zweig's column. Um, today and right, that yeah. just posted. Uh, he sort of has a whole bunch of reasons for why this wasn't capitulation. Right, yeah. Well, and he talks a little bit about what capitulation looks like. This, it'll be in the paper tomorrow as well, but it's online now. Um, capitulation, I mean, we were hearing it this week. People were saying, like, they didn't think the sell-off was over because when when a sell-off is really over, everyone just runs for the exits and, the the you know, there's a flood of sell orders and people get flood. All the sellers get flushed out of the system, and Jason makes the case that first of all, that's not really what it looks like. When when this when you're at the bottom, no one rings the bell. In fact, I think we said that, or you guys said that on the podcast earlier this week, right? That's that's one of Jason's favorite yeah. things to say, and and it's a point he makes again. You know, when when the the stock market bottomed in the financial crisis, when the S and P hit the intraday low of my favorite number six 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 was what it, it, it touched <laughs> for a moment. Um, you know, it, it, that volume that day was the same as it had been for the past two two weeks before that. There was there was no sign that we were that we were at the bottom. So I I, I thought he made a, a good point. People can go check it out online and. Or, or in the paper tomorrow, and, and see what he's he's talking about. But we're not going to know when the bottom comes. Chuck, you said you were working on a column about this very topic as well. I mean, what's your thoughts? I mean, have we was it well, capitulation if, or not? If you're a market technician and the market finishes today the way it stands as we record this, where it's 
you know, in green territory and up a little bit more than 1%, you can make a case. Like I had a guest on my show, Money Life, today, Leo Lydon, who was talking about if you had a good, strong follow-up day today, then yes, what you saw was capitulation. But you can also make the case that it's not. And there's an interesting thing that's going on here, which is you hate to say this time it's different or what have you. Right. But when you look at, and one of the things I've said on this podcast and others before, is when you're looking to say, you know, when, when have we reached the end of the bull market, it's when everybody is in and is euphoric about things. And that, of course, is where you then reach the, the point where, okay, and then the market turns. And everybody's been saying, look at all the money that's on the sidelines, and no, it's not going to reach that point. I'm starting to wonder whether or not we're seeing something completely different. Because we've had a lot of money on the sidelines since 2008. The people who got hurt, and you talk to guys like Scott Wren from the Wells Fargo Investment Institute, and he, he talks to ordinary people all the time and says, Chuck, you can't imagine how many folks got out in 2008, and they still haven't gotten back in. Right. And now they're looking at this. This is confirmation that they've been right to be out all this time. He doesn't believe that this money's ever going back. So he thinks the idea that we need to get something where everybody gets excited about the market to end the bull market, that that's over. And I'm starting to wonder if he's right. Yeah, because, I mean, it, you're, you're 100% right. We've been saying this a long time, first of all, that there's all this money on the sidelines. And the other thing, too, is where's this money going to go other than stocks? Well, maybe it's just not going to go into stocks ever. Yeah, exactly. It's, it's not going anywhere. Now, the, the other question, too, that's been interesting, and, and, and you guys can talk about this a little bit, Dan and Ben, is, the, is how orderly this sell-off has felt. Like, there hasn't really felt like there's been a, a real panic. And you, and you can sort of see that in the VIX, which hasn't really spiked all that much. Yeah, no, I, th- it, de- it definitely has felt orderly. Every single sell-off we've had in this in, in, since basically this bull market started has always felt orderly. Um, and... And you know, to Chuck's point, even the even the the big updates that we've had in this market actually never felt euphoric. So I, you know, I think that the sentiment has never really swung really all that extreme one way or the other at all during this entire bull run. But it, you know, it definitely it definitely has not felt disorderly. I think there's been a, a, a real absence of panic. Uh, and and Ben, I mean, Ben has been looking at a lot of those indicators. It seems that that's that's what those that those are showing. Yeah, I mean, if you look at what happened last August, um, I think that could be characterized as at least somewhat of a disorderly sell-off. You had um, the VIX spiked a lot higher than, than than what we've seen this time around, and also the the so-called VIX of VIX, uh, the the VIX is. Um, that was up to, to levels that were above what we saw in 2008. That's sort of like a measure of the volatility of volatility. Um, this time around, it wasn't even you know the highest in two months. So I mean, that's one sign that 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 yes, it's this is a lot more orderly. Um, but it's also perhaps something that's that has a tinge of worry attached to it as well. Well, how much of that do you think is the fact that um, that retail investors are on the sidelines? That that, that these are the big boys in here, um, you know, trading with each other. I mean, I think that's a good question. Um, uh, I think there probably are a lot of retail investors alongside uh, the institutional investors as well. I mean, uh, you know, it's, it's, it's once, once the selling picks up, uh, you know, that's when a lot of retail investors tend to get out because that's when, that's when their fear level picks up as well. Yeah, yeah. And, I and it, say, I'm, writing, I'm writing right now about panic as one of my, my columns for this weekend, and that's the one that sort of combines did we see capitulation. And, of course, 
I, I wish the media would stop saying things like, well, you know, it's important right now not to panic, as if panic is something that people control. And they go, hey, <laughs> like, this is a really good time to panic. That's a bad time to panic. Oh, yeah. The, the, the answer is the emotions haven't gotten overwhelming yet, and, and hopefully they won't. If the emotions don't get overwhelming, that means folks can, can maintain some measure of control. And if they're selling then they're at least trying to do it in a way that says, let me protect myself as opposed to let me, you know, get out at all costs. Chuck, what are you hearing also from, like, some of the, you know, retail investors and stuff like that? Um, you know, is there sort of a sense that they're sort of sticking with this market or are they, are they nervous? It, it really depends on what their philosophy is. This is a case where this is the time that tests the courage of your convictions. So the folks who are a little bit more trading-oriented, they're the ones who are saying, look, I, I want to seek some higher ground, and I'm okay that I'm going to have to make a second decision that says, when do I buy back in? The folks who are buy-and-holders, who are by-and-large, they're right now sort of out looking for bargains. And if they're looking anywhere, they're looking at dividend-paying stocks going, hey, if the, yield, if, the, if the dividend payout stays the same, but the price gets knocked down, then I'm buying something on sale, and I'm getting a better yield than I could get a week ago or a month ago. And so let me see if I can buy something that's going to give me a reasonable payout and pay me to wait, and that I think is someday going to come back. So it really depends. I'm not seeing a lot of opportunism. There's not a lot of folks who are going, oh, I really feel I can buy on this dip. There's a little bit of, hey, if I've got a plan in place, and I can be selective, then maybe this will add to it. And to harken back to the white column one more time, he gives a few examples of how uh, retail investors actually were getting in uh, early this week uh, when the market was uh, was having some trouble. Yeah, you not, talked not, to, not getting out. You yeah. talked to you know, a bunch of brokerages around the, yeah, the yeah. country. Um, I think that's a good place to pause, and when we come back, we'll talk a little snow, uh, and the East Coast is getting ready for that. Robert Half Research indicates 9 out of 10 hiring managers are having difficulty hiring. Robert Half is here to help. Our recruiting professionals utilize our proprietary AI to connect businesses with highly skilled talent. At Robert Half, we know talent. Visit roberthalf.com today. This is Jason Gay, and I have a podcast called Free For All. It's not just sports. We'll also talk about some music, some culture, some fashion. I could talk about fashion. Become a subscriber on iTunes and check us out at wsj.com slash podcast. WSJ Podcasts. Listen ambitiously. Now, from New York, Financial Food Fight. Welcome back. Uh, the East Coast is bunkering down for its first uh Snowstorm of the year. It's been a relatively warm year. Um, and Eric, you have um, a stock. I right? wish I'd been on the podcast on Wednesday because I totally. <laughs> uh, did you hear me tell this to our colleague Kristen? No, I turned I did to not. her and said, "I said on Friday or Monday we have to write about this company, Douglas Dynamics." And you know what it's done since I, I since I said that it's up nine percent. Now, Doug, anyone heard of Douglas Dynamics? I have not. The ticker? No. Nope. Plow. <laughs> they make they make snowplows, and as the uh, as the uh, news has and the frenzy, the media frenzy has been building towards this thing. Uh, from the moment I said that, I wrote down the stock prices right around seventeen, and it was it, it, this 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 morning it was over eighteen fifty, or eighteen dollars fifty cents a share. Yeah. And, it, and, and 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 plow is not the only uh, company. This has actually been very good for a lot of the uh, beaten down natural gas, uh, you know, companies. Um, they're getting a boost today as everyone is expecting uh, prices to go up. 
um, for the snow. And, and what's been really an unseasonably, at least in New York here, unseasonably warm uh, winter so far. How has it been yeah. in Boston, Chuck? Well, after last winter, everything is pretty easy. So right now, nobody here dare say anything. And even with the storm that they're talking about, it's really not coming our way or all the way up to us with any kind of ferocity like what we saw last year. So we're just going to sit quietly and go, yeah, we, we got ours last year. You guys are still. I mean, you, uh, the way it happened last year, you could still almost be digging out of it. Uh, my parents' house is like basically covered in snow. They, well, they live just outside of Boston. I, I live just south of the city, and I am six foot two inches tall. The front of my house was obscured. The light post in front, it went up to the beyond the All you could see was the top of the light post. Wow. And, and I couldn't use I have two front doors. I only dug out one. The other one was not <laughs> usable. The other one was not usable until April Fool's Day. Wow. Wow. And do you know what's going to be scary is that Washington, D.C. can't handle two inches no. of snow. And they can no. get two feet this weekend. It's going to be really bad. No, no, they can't. Um, I think that's a good place to end it here. Thanks for joining us. This is Steve Grosser with Ben Eisen, Dan Strom, Eric Holm, and Chuck Jaffe. WSJ Podcasts. Listen ambitiously.